Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 212. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 212 you're listening to. My guest today is Gentry Studer. Yes, Gentry Studer. Studer, amazing, huh? No relation whatsoever to the Studer we all know and love. But Gentry is a mastering engineer. He runs Epicenter Mastering. That's located in Nashville, Tennessee. Although it's moved around, he's been in Los Angeles before that, and he's also been in Michigan. He cut his teeth early on uh, working under Howie Weinberg. Howie's somebody I got to get on the show at some point, and uh, I will do that. But very cool situation for Gentry working under Howie and learning the ins and the outs of mastering. And now he's out on his own. He's actually located in the historic RCA Studio A building there in Nashville. So those of you in Nashville who are listening, you might want to stop by and uh, check Gentry out. He's, He's over there. I don't know where he is in the building, but he's there in Studio A. So, Gentry Studer coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee. I've got mine. Let's drink some coffee. Mm. Nick, Statina, I went through your coffee, so we're, we've moved on to some other coffee. And uh, this coffee actually comes from our friends over at the License Lab. That was a Christmas gift uh, from our friends over there. So, we're now drinking License Lab coffee. All right, so not too much monologuing to do today, but I just wanted to mention this little anecdote. And it came up because I was speaking with my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. I had mentioned to him something that had to do with opportunity. Opportunity does not come knocking at opportune times. It comes when it's good and ready. And if you are willing to jump on and do the work, then, you know, good things could possibly come your way. And Lidge had brought it up because I had mentioned it to him and he said it had stuck with him. Jameson Durr from the last episode from uh, number 211, he mentioned when John Cunaberti came calling to him about working with Sammy Hagar and Chickenfoot with Joe Satriani and Chad from Chili Peppers and Michael from Van Halen. He called him and said, I got this opportunity. I can't tell you what it is, but I need you to sign on. And, you know, basically opportunity came and Based on John's seriousness about it and the secretiveness of it, Jameson knew he needed to just answer the call and go. It may not be convenient, but he cleared his schedule and he did what he needed to do, and there you go. So, opportunity does not come knocking at opportune times. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's that. That's that's your New Year's thing. Be prepared for that opportunity. Let's get to it. Gentry Studer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Gentry, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. We have to start immediately with what has got to be one of the most unique names, which I'm sure you've heard before, Gentry Studer. I mean, it doesn't get any more 
pro-audio-centric than that. But as you say in your bio, there is no relation to the Studer company. Yeah, unfortunately. I've uh, been trying to get a tape machine for years, but they won't send me one. <laughs> they won't let you inherit inherit the company? Unfortunately not. Where are you originally from? Man, that's a question. I was born in Florida, and then I did most of my young upbringing in Atlanta, and then I moved to Phoenix, then to L.A., then a short stint in Michigan, and now I'm in Nashville. Wow. So where did uh, the world of recording meet you in your life, and uh, how did it present itself? My mom made me, of course, like everybody else, started playing music, but my mom made me start taking piano lessons when I was five. And then at the manly age of 13, I decided I was too manly to play piano, so I started playing guitar. And then when I was 18, I realized I got more ladies by playing piano, so I started playing piano again. And did the whole run around trying to be a musician, being in bands, things like that. And then I went to a recording school to learn how to pursue my rock star dream. Learned I was just mm. a bad musician and fell in love with the engineering side. And that was in Phoenix. Uh, I went to the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences down there. Then, yeah, moved to L.A. to start an internship and the rest is history. Who did you intern with in L.A.? I started with Howie Weinberg. Ah. Yeah, so I started under him. I was there for three years, three, four years or so. Started as an intern, you know, sweeping the floors, doing what everybody else does, and then worked my way up to assistant and then lead and then senior mastering engineer before I started my own operation. What did you learn from Howie? What were the takeaways from, from working with Howie? What did I not learn from Howie? I mean, the dude's an icon and a legend. Pretty much everything, you know, there's not one thing that I can point to my success, but dude's just smart. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing it a long time. And just being able to watch him and be part of that process, you just pick up on things naturally, you know? Did you learn anything business-wise from him that uh, you still utilize to this day? Yeah, mostly how you treat people. You know, he taught me customer service was a huge thing and the vibe, the feeling and relationships are everything in this industry as opposed to what you can do on a board. You know, that's important, but it doesn't matter if you're not working and you don't have those clients and relationships and talking to people and stuff like that. Interesting. So you did the, the internship with Howie. Was was there anybody else that you interned with or was, was it just it was Howie? just Howie. Uh, well, I mean, he had some other engineers when I first started and then they slowly went out. You know, it was one of those situations where he fired his head guy and he was like, are you ready? And you're just kind of like, yes, even though you have no idea what you're about to do. You don't know the mastering software. You know, it's not Pro Tools. And you just kind of say yes and figure it out as you go. Trial by fire. It, exactly. Really. I think one of the first big projects I did anything on was one of the Frey albums, actually, sequencing it all together and making the master parts. You know, when you come from outside of Los Angeles or California in general, what was your impression of California, specifically Southern California. Was that a shock? It was underwhelming, you know? I remember when I pulled into LA, so I packed, after I finished school, the day after I packed all my stuff in my car, sold everything else and just drove out there. I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have an internship lined up yet. I didn't have anything, so I was just going out there. I remember pulling onto Hollywood Boulevard thinking this is going to be amazing, this shiny, wonderful place. There's going to be stars all over the place. And I was greeted with a bum using the bathroom on the side of the road. And that was my impression of L.A. for a lot of the time I was there. Welcome to Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. 
Now, that was the visual aspect of how L.A. introduced itself. What about, you know, not only working with Howie, but the world of audio in L.A.? What were your impressions of that? You know, for me, it seemed pretty easy. I mean, you know, I had Howie Weinberg. When I got in there, I I had Howie and all his clients and talking to his people, and everybody just seemed creative and always working together. And I was excited, you know, I was 20... 21 when I did that. And so I was excited and it was fun. Everybody seemed to be working on stuff. Everybody seemed to know what they're doing. But I think that's just because I got introduced at such a high caliber to the industry. And then, you know, there's all the indie bands that are struggling playing gigs. And that's a different story. That's, you know, that's a different conversation. Right. And so why did you why did you choose to leave Los Angeles? I got tired of the shiny things. I got tired of the traffic. You know, when I was I had my studio in Paramount Recording, which is on Santa Monica and Vine right there. And I lived in Studio City, which is about four miles away. And it would take me about an hour uh-huh. and a half each way to get to work every day. And then, you know, doing mastering, not a lot of people show up to the sessions, unfortunately. So I was like, why am I paying so much money? to do this when I could literally do this anywhere. And I got tired of just, it was expensive. People there are, the people from LA are really cool. Everybody else, there's this weird facade to me that I just didn't like. And so, you know, I had an opportunity to move and I took it and left. I forgot to mention the fact that you had left the nest with Howie, so to speak, right. and set up shop on your own before leaving Los Angeles. Correct, Angelus. correct, yeah. I had been doing it on my own for about a year and a half, two years. Tell me about that process of leaving, setting up shop, and how that all came together for you. What were the challenges in that? Honestly, it was just buying the gear. Because being with, <laughs> you know, the gear's the gear's not cheap. Um, I'm a big fan of all the SPL stuff, and it's worth every penny, if not more, but it's not cheap. You know, every piece is like a brand new car, it seems like. That was the biggest challenge, and finding a spot, finding a spot to set up shop. So when I was at Howie's, I'd already gained a list of contacts and clients and all that stuff, and I was working, and the whole real reason why I left is I just didn't have time to do both at the same time. So it was finding a spot, getting the gear, and then after that, the challenges were keeping those recurring clients coming back and back and back and trying to convince them that you're better than everybody else, essentially. And so setting up your shop, finding a place to rent, how was that process? Took me a couple months. I had ran into one of my friends I hadn't seen in a while, and she was the studio manager at Paramount Recording. And she was like, Mm. hey, we have a production room open if you're interested. I forget who, someone had just moved out of a production room. And she was like, if you're interested, you know, we got the spot, a lot of cool bands, a lot of cool things are happening, might be a good fit for you. So I talked to Adam and Mike, the owners, and set up a deal and yeah, started working. Very cool. And how were you getting clients at that point? It's all been word of mouth. I have not done too much marketing. It's all just, like I said, those lessons I learned from Howie, it was just the people you knew and going out, seeing shows, talking to bands, talking to producers, talking to the mixers, talking to the A&R people. You're working when people like you. It's one of those things like if you can be the best at what you do, but if you don't like someone, you don't want to spend time with them. You don't want to give them your hard-earned money. So it was just being a, a cool dude, I guess, at the end of the day and hanging out with people and they recommend you. And that's how I got all my work besides all the people that I knew from Howie's, you know? After a year or so of that, you decide to leave and you head out to Michigan. I did. Yeah, yeah. Set up shop in a, I got this big house on two acres for a fifth of what I was paying in LA and set up shop (laughs) in the basement and worked remotely for 
six, eight months, whatever it was, to kind of reset from the L.A. vibe. So that was in Grand Rapids? That was in Grand Rapids, right. Interesting. What made you choose that area? Oh, there was a girl. Like, mm. <laughs> yep, yep, there was a girl that was moving back, and I was like, I want to come with. And, of course, that ended really well, if you can catch the sarcasm <laughs> in that comment. <laughs> How did you find the transition from California to Michigan in terms of the work, the workload, did that change at all? Not really. You know, there wasn't new clients. You know, Grand Rapids isn't exactly a music town. So I wasn't able to go out and make new clients, but I kept my previous clients and stayed consistent. And like I said, maybe I lost a couple gigs, but I was paying a fifth of the price, so it wasn't a big deal. But it got real lonely up there, I'll tell you that much. Um, when you're used to talking and hanging out with people every single night, to not. It got, it was real. That was the hardest transition for me. Huh. But you shipped all of your gear, drove all your gear across the country, mm -hmm. set up shop. And uh, that's interesting. And did you ever tell your LA clients that you'd move? Not at first, because people are weird about that sometimes. They're like, oh, you're not in the same city, even though you don't see each other. You don't, you know, you talk on the phone, but they don't come. So I didn't really tell people unless they asked, essentially. And it just stayed consistent. And I don't know if that's because I didn't tell people or I don't think anybody cares. Yeah, I told a few people, told the people that I used to hang out with all the time and would come to every session that I was relocating and they were fine with it. They didn't, you know, at that point I, we had built up enough trust to continue working together. When you're working with remote clients and mastering, what do you find the most effective ways to communicate? I always try to do a phone call. One, to set expectations of what you can and cannot do in mastering. And also to feel them out, what they kind of want, what they're going for, sequence things, talk about any questions they have, you know, make them comfortable as well with working someone across the country, essentially. I'm a phone call person. Texting, emails are good for notes and anything I have to remember because usually there's so much going on that I'm like, I got to reference stuff. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Memory's going. But um, yeah, a phone call. A phone call and then a follow-up email just to confirm everything we talked about. And then usually people are more comfortable. People are more confident that their product's going to be good. They, there's more trust in you. They're not second-guessing every decision you make and things like that. What do you think the most common points of miscommunication are between a client and a mastering engineer? What are the things in mastering that confuse people the most that you've come across? Uh, mastering? Every, everything. It's the black art of music production. Oh, but um, <laughs> The whole thing? I, you know, I, I think this is more than just mastering and music production, but assumptions. I think too many people assume things and uh -huh. then it's just unmet expectations or undiscussed expectations and what you get back isn't what you thought sometimes or just, you know, in general, and then you're disappointed. So that's why that phone call helps is to manage all those expectations and get any concerns and thoughts. And I'm very like thorough, I guess, you know, I'm like, I don't want to assume this. So let me ask, like, make sure that you misspelled this word because you meant to, not because it was an accident, you know, just very detail oriented stuff like that. But yeah, I just think assumptions are what cause disappointment. Yeah. When we talk about assumptions, clients can assume in mastering, it's going to sound like, you know, I mean, you're, you're confined to the limitations of the mix. Correct. So mix sounds like they spent $10 on it. Their expectations are that it's going to sound like a million dollars. So when you hear the mixes and then have that phone call, if what they've given you differs from the 
conversation, so to speak. Do you ever say, you know, I hear you sing the, this, but, you know, truthfully, <laughs> this mix, um, I can only take it so far. So it's not going to sound like uh, the million dollar thing that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have conversations like that? All the time. I'm a very blunt an honest person. So if you ask me my opinion, you get my opinion. And I try to break that in the nicest way possible. But sometimes it's like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. But I always preface that conversation with, you know, you're the client. You're the one who has to stand behind it and be proud of it. You know, essentially, I'm just a tool in music production. At the end of the day, you're the one selling it. You're the one representing it. So your your decision is the one that gets made. But I'm going to give you my honest opinion and give you the options to do that. Interesting. Do you ever turn down work based on you get the mix and you're like, oh, I can't do this. I, I Not only can I not do it, but do you ever get stuff that you just don't want to be a part of? I do. I do. Um, and funny enough, it's always the loudness thing. Like, it sounds really good but can you make it louder? And it's like, why? why? Like, it's loud, it's punchy, it's fine. They're like, yeah, but it's not as loud as so-and-so. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't really care about loudness. Everything gets normalized and whatever on the streaming sites. But um, either I tell them, no, I'm not going to do that and go somewhere else, or I'll do it, just don't put my name on it because you're paying me. And money, you know, you need money to live. So sometimes it's a tricky situation to navigate. Hmm. <laughs> Do you ever feel like, well, if I let this one go, then, you know, that's that could potentially hurt my reputation? Or do you feel like you're letting go for the right reasons enough that you're okay with it? I'm okay with it. You know, at the end of the day, my my name's on it, my my brand's on it, my hard work. So if I put out or if I allow something that's not up to what I think is good, that could hurt my reputation just as much as turning down a project where I'm like, yeah, sorry, you know. Mm -hmm. and it's, I think it all just depends on how you break it to these people. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. 
what is the standard you are trying to achieve with your own work and your own workflow and, and the decisions you make? What is it uh, that you're trying to maintain for yourself? What's important? The song. Could get into the technical, you know, loudness, overcompression, all that stuff. And that's that's important. But to me, it's it's all about the song. So if it's a dance track, if I'm not dancing by the time I'm done, it's not done. If it's a sad song and I'm not crying, I don't really cry much, but you get the point. It's not done. To me, that's more important than having my sound. I don't want a sound. You know, I don't want it to be like, that sounds like Gentry Studer. Like that's, that's not what I'm about. I just want the song to be best represented that it can be. And that's my philosophy on standards, I guess. At the end of the day, if you want some weird thing that's distorting or the bass is too loud and it fits the song, fantastic. I'm, I'm more about the music, but I grew up playing music and somewhat producing records and stuff like that. So I'm more about the song than some sonic thumbprint of my own. You've since left Michigan. Correct. And you are now in Nashville. Tell me about what drove that decision. Well, like I said, I got bored up in Michigan and things ended so well with that girl I was talking about that... Um, I decided I needed to, I wanted to be in a music city again, and I wasn't ready to go to LA. I just had no desire to be there. And growing up in Atlanta, I was like, I'm going to try the South out. And then I got a phone call saying that a production room had opened up in RCA Studios if I was ever down there or wanted to open a second location. And I was like, this is perfect timing. I don't know if you believe in signs, but I was like, well, I can't really shake my head at that. So yeah, I just packed all my stuff in a U-Haul again and drove the eight hours to Nashville, spent about a week setting up the room and started working. It's been a pretty easy transition. I'm always fascinated by just you talk about that you're going to go and take up residency at this production in this production space at RCA. I'm fascinated by the logistics of what happens between that phone call and execution. And so, did you sign a lease? Uh, and 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 how long of a lease is that for? I got that phone call, and it was kind of kind of a pain. You had to go through a broker, and had to go through like two different brokers because they're very. You have to be in the music industry to work in this building. So they got to vet you and all that kind of stuff. So I essentially got that phone call a week later, flew down to Nashville to check out the spot and meet the management company essentially. And then two weeks after that, I was driving down to, to Nashville to move in, uh, wrote the check, signed the lease. It's a, I just had to sign a year lease just to kind of get the feel. Like I said, I just moved here. So I was like, maybe I'll just give myself a year, but I'm thinking after this year's up, I'll resign for the three or five, uh, mm. at least. It's just a good building, good people. Everybody in here is amazing. Dave Cobb has Studio A downstairs. So yep. it's not a bad not, not a bad place to be. No. I find Nashville in general not a bad place to be. Um, my listeners know I've talked about it endlessly. It's a great place. And I think that if I didn't live where I live, I'd probably live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The food's good. Everybody's nice. For the most part, you know, the Southern uh, hospitality is is a real thing. It's, a, it's easy to get around. There's not much traffic, well, compared to L.A. All the uh, Nashvilleans that have lived here for a long time are complaining about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's We're going the speed limit. There's just more cars. Not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, they haven't spent, they need to, they need to get into L.A. traffic or even Bay Area mm-hmm. traffic which has become colossal. They can go to Atlanta and experience it if they want. It's 
I was down there not too long ago, and I was like, this is as bad as L.A., so. Yeah. This is a recent event, you moving down there, right? It is. July, six months or whatever it's been. What, what do you think? Oh, I love it. I you, love it so much. You happy? I'm very happy down here. The only problem I have is there's not a lot of 24-hour eateries around, so that's kind of a, a uh, change. Everything closes at like 10 or 11, you know, and you get off of a session, uh-huh. and you're like, I'm hungry. It's midnight, and nowhere's open. I mean, the Walmart closes in in this town at one. So it's just a different lifestyle. But besides that, I love it. San Francisco and, and Los Angeles are very similar in that way where you can get out of work at 12 and be like, all right, let's go eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's great. The weather's not bad. It's a good place to be. Let's talk some business. How do you charge? Do you charge by the song or by the project? What's How do you structure that? I structure mine. It's It's by the song, by the track. So obviously it's different depending on indie and major label clients, but essentially it's by the track. Usually if there's like 11 tracks, I just charge the 10 track price. I try to be fair in that. And with that comes an alternate version. So like an instrumental, acapella, TV, that's included in the price. And then there's, you know, a surcharge for any extras. Um, I also include all the master parts. So the DDPs, the MFITs, the, you know, Spotify, whatever, you know, whatever distribution platform they're using, whatever masters they need is included in the price as well. I want to split hairs for a minute with you or parse that for a bit. You know, most most indie artists are going through, let's say, an aggregator like a TuneCore mm-hmm. or a DistroKid, right? Right. So when you say you actually make a, you make, do you actually make a separate thing for Spotify or any other? I know that MFIT, you know, Master for iTunes is, is a different thing right. than just the general uh, streaming thing. But my understanding is, is that you have one delivery format that goes to say DistroKid and then that goes out to all. So that's right. Is there, okay. So, so d- is it rare that somebody would ask you for a specific for, format for a particular platform? Uh, sometimes the smaller indie people, clients, you know, they, they'll want something for SoundCloud specifically. Everything else is 40 for 116 for TuneCore, DistroKid, CD Baby, whatever aggregator you're using. But sometimes they'll request, you know, a 4824 for their music video because that's what the video guy told them they need, which is, you know, standard for video production is 4824. So it's kind of just per project basis. But for the most part, everybody just wants 44116s. And then I print, I give them high res. I print everything at uh, 9632. So then I send them those as well, just... So they have them and they can hear yeah. the difference between the um, sample rate conversion. Okay. Because your your system, and I see two screens behind you, I assume that in, based on the, the analog gear behind you, you're running two computers? Right. Yeah. So I have a, a pitch and catch system. I mean, essentially think like tape machine style. You know, you had a playback machine and a record machine. So yeah. that's how I work. So I play out of either Pro Tools or I've recently started using Studio One. Um, yeah. as the pitch DAW, which is, it's a lot of fun. The Studio One, the, the mastering version of Studio? No. The Studio One Pro? I mean, I have the Pro version, but um, uh-huh. I just play it out of that into the rig. And then okay, I okay. re-record it into merging technologies, Pyramix. And that allows you to do all the sequencing and metadata. And it's just a crazy program. Mm. So, Yeah, and just for the non-mastering 
engineer listeners, there seems to be a couple different ways these days. You know, there's, I, I like how you phrase that, the pitch and the catch systems where you have two computers, playback system and a record system, mm -hmm. the analog chain in between. But then there are those that are doing it, uh, there's hybrid systems and uh, in-the-box systems. And even in, in the hybrid systems, uh, it seems that a lot of people are also doing doing everything in one computer and then using like Isotope or RX or what is it, Seracon from Weiss to do the mm -hmm. sample rate conversion. Okay. Yeah. There's a million ways to skin a cat, whatever. You know, like I said, if it is if it sounds good, it is good. I don't, yeah. you know, to me, it's not like you have to do analog. It's the only, like, I use it because I know how to use it. I've tried plugins. I just don't think I know what I'm doing, to be honest with you. Because there's, there's amazing people that do amazing projects in the box and that's fine the only main benefit for me doing this is i can re-record everything at 9632 because that's what mastered for itunes they want it the highest quality or 96 they just want the higher quality so i can play back a 44 one project and re-record it at 96 off the desk yeah as opposed to up sampling which is not really gonna... yeah, it just adds dead space yeah Okay, and so you were in Los Angeles and you're in Michigan and now you're in Nashville. <laughs> so are there clients that have stayed with you through that trans transition? Yeah, for the most part. I've been very fortunate that a lot of people have stuck with me, I guess, through all my crazy moves and ideas and things. You know, I'm like, I'm tired of this place. I'm going to leave. Who knows? Maybe I'll be in Asheville next year. But yeah, they've all stayed. It's consistent. You know, I feel like once you find your mastering engineer, that's your go-to guy, you know? I don't feel like you switch around too much. Like a lot of people use different producers and mixers and that stuff. And some people use different mastering engineers, but I feel like for the most part, once you find your mastering guy, you kind of stick with that person, which is yeah. good for repeat clients and bad when you're trying to steal clients, of course. But yeah, they've all stuck with me. Have you found the process of getting work in Nashville a challenge? Not really. I go on a lot of coffee dates and that's, I'm like, hey, let's get to know each other. Like, let's, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's sit for an hour and talk. And I don't know if people do that anymore. I think it's a nice gesture for people to be treated to a cup of coffee and just a normal conversation. You know, I'm not out here trying to be like, well, I see you did this. I want to work with you. It's like, hey, I want to get to know you. Like, I want to build a, a relationship with you. And then we can talk about working together after if it comes up. I just like to know people. Well, yeah, and I just like to drink coffee, so. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I go out to coffee with people all the time. In fact, I, many listeners come into town and send me an email and say, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley or whatever. Can I get together for coffee? And I'm always up for it because it's enjoyable to meet other audio people and talk shop and oh. see what they're up to and, you know, grow your community. Absolutely. I mean, I spend 12 hours a day in a room by myself. So getting out and having a cup of coffee and a normal conversation makes you feel human again, you know? Yeah. Well, so you like to move. I, I just hate being static, I think would be a better way to put that. When I get bored of a place or I get tired of a place, I'm like, I need to switch it up and try something new. Nashville's been treating me very nicely and I could see myself being here for 10 years or, you know, maybe not. I don't know. Just kind of take it as it comes. Yeah, and you mentioned Asheville, possibly. Are you always kind of looking around going, where would be a great place to live? Like, what what's your criteria for a place to live and work? Well, work, you can pretty much do wherever, or at least I can now. 
Yeah. And to live, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll let you know when I find it. So far, Nashville's been it, you know, with the, besides the beautiful women and the hot chicken and just how nice everybody is. It's been wonderful. But yeah, Asheville's cool. I travel a lot. So Austin's cool. Asheville's cool. Even Atlanta's cool. It's just too big of a city for me right now. I think I'm trying to like find the perfect balance between LA and the middle of the woods that has a music scene. Nashville might be that that balance, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Right now, at least. Things change. But right now, I totally agree with you. What are your thoughts on on money and business and how you operate and save or, or not? Yeah. Well, money's... Money comes and goes, I'll tell you that much. It's easy to make a lot of money, it's easy to spend a lot of money, especially when you start looking into gear. So every project I get paid, obviously I'm not getting paid every two weeks like a normal job, it's contract-based. So I take my percentage that I have to pay my manager and I have a separate savings account for that. And then I have another savings account that I split that project. I take the remaining 90% and I essentially put 60% of that into the savings account and has to pay bills and rent and all that stuff. And then the other 40% is kind of like my gear money, do whatever you want with money kind of thing. And that's kind of how I hmm. break up my, keeps me from spend, not spending too much money. Because if you see a big number in, my, in a bank account, I'm going to be like, all right, cool. I can, I can afford that Ferrari. I mean, not really. But, you know, you see the big number <laughs> right. and it's I get like, your point. oh, it's not a big deal, you know, spending five grand on this new piece of gear. Whereas opposed when it's split up and you have it managed like that, you're like, well, I don't think it's the smartest idea to spend five grand on that piece of gear right now. Maybe I should wait. Yeah. Do I need it? You know, it just keeps you more humble and honest with yourself. And also, you know, the savings account for the manager keeps the work coming in. So <laughs> there's that. You, you have a manager. So how did that come about? And tell me about how effective that is for you. It came about just by me reaching out to different companies and liking one person and started working with them. And I mean, kind of in a weird transition right now, of interviewing new managers, to be honest with you, because uh, my current manager is getting out of the industry. But for me, my current manager just mostly does admin work, which and, and quotes and billing and stuff like that. So that keeps me more on the creative side. It's kind of hard to talk to clients and haggle on rates and then be like, okay, cool. Now let's make this creative project the best it can be. Um, so it kind of separates the world. And also I just hate doing the admin work. It's just, it's not fun. Nobody likes doing it. So <laughs> it's well worth the percentage I pay them to do it, in my opinion. Interesting. Well, yeah, uh, I guess it depends on one's personality. I, I don't have a problem with the admin work uh, for myself. I liked, uh, but that might be a control freak kind of thing. It took me a while to let go of that, you know, CC me on every email. I needed, you know, want us to follow the money trail. And then I was like, well, I trust you. You're whatever. I don't think you're doing anything yeah. shady. So where do you see yourself in career, living, working, anything in the next five years? What, what do you think is ahead? Well, hopefully, you know, mastering. I've been, so I used to produce, and I say that very loosely, very shitty bands back in Phoenix. And I'm kind of interested in going back into that maybe just a little bit, you know, pick and choose the projects I want to do. If like more like passion project kind of producing. But as far as career wise, definitely still mastering as of right now, still in Nashville, but you know, that all can change in a month depending on how moody I am. Yeah. Living wise, I love my, I live right next to Centennial Park 
down here in Nashville. So with the Parthenon right there, I live right there. It's a great area. Studios on Music Row and RCA. So I don't really see a need to change any of that right now. Uh, how are you finding cost of living there? A fraction of the cost of LA. <laughs> it's it's not it's not bad. I've heard I've heard other people like I said. It's like the traffic thing. Uh, everybody is complaining about the rising prices and for living and rent and yada yada yada. But I don't find it bad. And I'm also like, well, it's a it's a booming city. It's an expanding city. You know, you look out your window and there's 12 cranes building new apartment complexes to accommodate all the people moving here. So of course, everything's going to go up. It's becoming a big little city, essentially. Where can people find out more about you? My website, epicentermastering.com. There's a bio and credits, links to everything I've worked on and stuff like that. There's, you know, the social media sites, but I tend not to be too active on those. Kind of live in my own bubble. But yeah, the website... Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. It's where you can find out more about me. Excellent. We'll put a link in the show notes to all that. So if uh, listeners, if you want to reach out to Gentry and have him do some work for you, then uh, you can find him there. I would appreciate that. Gentry, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. It's great to meet you. And I'll be uh, in Nashville, most likely at SummerNAM. Uh, that will be in, I think that's July off the top of my head. Can't totally remember. I think you're right. I think you're right. But uh, I will make a point of reaching out and uh, we'll go have a cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. Sounds perfect. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you for being with me today and uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. Sounds good. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Gentry Studer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. I want to give a shout out to our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale, for his Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith for the voice at the beginning of the show. So, also want to thank all of you for listening. I appreciate it. You coming back week after week. And like I always say, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.